0: 10 verses 1 through 12 if you have one of the black bibles that the ushers handed out uh, or one of the bibles from the back that is on page 845 Um, so again i'll be reading mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 Uh, and as i'm reading remember that this is god's word starting in verse 1 and he left there and went to the region of judea and beyond the jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again as was his custom he taught them And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Mark.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke, and uh, it's awesome to be able to be here and to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, before I do, I just want to let those of you who are new here, if you've been, uh, maybe this is your first time, or you've just been around a handful of times, we have an environment that we would love to encourage you to participate in called Start Here. There's information about it in your program, but it's really a way to kind of jumpstart your, uh, your relationships here, as well as kind of cast some vision for you about how we want to help you grow. We really don't believe that the only and best way to grow in your faith is to do it in rows. We eventually get you in circles and get you connected to people and uh, that's a great first step for you. So you can look in your program about that if you uh, are interested. The title of today's message is Serious About Marriage and that struck me as kind of funny because this weekend actually is a marriage getaway, a marriage retreat for all the different redemption congregations. It struck me that the people who are serious about marriage went to that and the rest of us knuckleheads, uh, We're here, right? We didn't go to that, and so just interesting God's timing. Um, he's going to help us get serious about marriage, and that will be good. I realize uh, as we look at a passage like this that there's a wide variety of experiences and, and desire and, and situations related to marriage. I realize that a number of you are married, a number of you are not. Some of you used to be married, some of you would like to be married, and, uh, and some of you have no intention to be married ever again or at all. Right? So I realize there's a, a wide swath there. Here's what I want to tell you, because there's all kinds of times when you read the Bible and you think to yourself, I don't know exactly right away how that applies to me. And you might go, oh great, a, a message about marriage, I'm single, I, I'm divorced, this is not going to have anything to do with me. Here's what I want you to know, even in the portions of scripture when you think, I don't know exactly how this relates to me, you know what it shows you? It shows you something about God. All summer, I was reading the Psalms, and, and most of the Psalms are about you know someone getting chased by an enemy of some kind. I'm going, I'm on vacation. This is fantastic. I don't, I, don't, I don't relate to this chasing. What is this enemy thing that's going on? And yet you realize, okay, this shows me something about God's heart. So that's what I hope we can hear from a little bit today. Um, so let's invite God to speak to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that a timeless God does not produce dated material, and that this is relevant to us here today, regardless of our situation, because it shows us your heart. And so, Father, we invite your spirit to fill us, to fill this place, and to speak to us. Give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, before we get into this passage, let me just remind you a little bit where we're at in the gospel of Mark. We're in this larger section that kind of began around the end of chapter 8, where uh, we are following Jesus on the way to the cross. A number of times Jesus in this section that we're in has predicted to his disciples that he was going to be betrayed and that he was going to die and that he was going to rise again. Each time the disciples don't really get it and actually at the, toward the middle of chapter 10 that we're in he's going to tell them again in most detail of any of the times but that's what we're doing right here. We're, a section, we're in a section about following Jesus as a disciple on the way to the cross. Jesus came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the call of a disciple is a call to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow him. And so Jesus is instructing and teaching and encouraging his followers to, to live a life, follow a path of self denial and sacrifice obviously because that's a concept that none of us are very good at it's filled with misunderstanding and chapter 10 in particular is a, is a chapter that just has constantly people just not getting it uh, our congregation in arcadia they just recently purchased a, a property, an older church that uh, is right on Camelback, and they had an opportunity to purchase that. So they took a few weeks off from Mark this summer to just cast vision and talk about that. And so uh, their pastor there, Frank, actually has to teach all of chapter 10 basically as one sermon because they got behind. And he told me that the title of his sermon on chapter 10 is Adventures in Missing the Point. Adventures in missing the point, right? The Pharisees are going to miss the point here about marriage, and then the disciples are going to miss the point about children, and the rich young ruler is going to miss the point about what it is to follow him, and then the no- more disciples are going to miss. Right, Adventures in missing the point. It's easy to, to mistake and to mess up the purpose of something. Right, How many of you, just show of hands here, how many of you have ever used a screwdriver to hammer something? <laughs> right, We've all done that. Right, you you, and and in a pinch, it's okay, right? But but you know that the purpose of a screwdriver is not to hammer stuff, right? It's to screw and to unscrew, right? If you really want something to hammer, well, you get a hammer. Well, you can use things in ways that aren't their purpose, and so many people are confused about the purpose of marriage. Don't answer out loud, but if you had to answer that question. What's the purpose of marriage? What would you say? What first comes to mind? Is it right? Are you sure? Is that your final answer? What would Jesus say? That's what we're going to see here in this passage. Now, Jesus gets to that because of kind of a trick question. All along the way through this uh, story, through this narrative of Jesus' life, there's this group of guys, the Pharisees. They're the real religious elites, and they're constantly testing and trying to trap Jesus. And so we're going to go through a story where they try to trap Jesus. We're going to look at a little bit his answer, and then we're going to zoom in at what he said was really the purpose of marriage At all, So Jesus gets here because of this trick question. You see in verse 1, Jesus is around, he's teaching. Mark doesn't tell us a lot about what Jesus is teaching here. He just says he taught people. And then maybe after the teaching or maybe kind of during a break or we don't know exactly what. It says in verse 2, And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? Well, what's the scripture say? Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So it says there in verse 2 that they ask him this question, not because they're curious, not because they really want to know, not because their hearts are soft and eager to hear what Jesus has to say. They're asking to test him. We'll talk in a minute about why this is actually a test. But the nature of this test relates to a controversy surrounding what Moses writes about divorce. You saw it referenced there in the conversation. And and, and the reference that they all have in mind here is Deuteronomy 24. Now Deuteronomy 24 is a section of scripture uh, known as the Law, where a lot of different laws and prescriptions for how God's people, as the nation of Israel, were to live. And in Deuteronomy 24, there's a there's a, a discussion there about if if a, a woman is if a man divorces his wife and then the wife gets remarried and the the new husband either divorces her or dies, she can't get remarried to the first husband. And there's it's kind of this thing you read it and you go, okay, I, whatever, I'm not really sure what to do with this, but the controversy all surrounds Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. I want to put it on the screen here for you and we highlighted the word that that the controversy really is all about. This is what they're testing him on. It says in Deuteronomy 24 1 when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce dot dot dot. Now the controversy of Jesus day was surrounding the the meaning of the word indecency. If a wife has found displeasure in her husband's eyes because he's found some indecency in her, well, what is this indecency that allows someone to divorce? Well, there were really two schools of thought on it, and a lot of the different rabbis thought different things. There was the Shemai school. He was a well-known rabbi, and, and he believed that this word indecency meant infidelity, meant adultery. Right. So just read it that way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some adultery in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, dot, 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 right? So that was one school, maybe a more kind of theologically conservative kind of school. Then there was a more theologically liberal type of, of thought on this. And this was the Hillel school of thinking. And the Hillel school of thinking thought this word meant for any and every reason. Any kind of displeasure, anything that displeased the husband, right? So just read it this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found something he didn't like about her, And he writes her certificate of divorce, dot, dot, dot. Right? You see how wildly different those interpretations are, right? This word indecency is a Hebrew word that refers to nakedness. So it's not entirely, it's just not entirely clear what what exactly is going on. And so they're debating this and they're arguing about this. Now, the Pharisees, interestingly, are taking the more liberal position, right? Implied in their question, Because listen, everybody believed that you could divorce because of adultery. All Jews, all Greeks, all people of this day thought that's a valid reason. When the bond of marriage is broken by infidelity, divorce is now an option. Everyone believed that. So the subtext of their question is, when they ask in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And in fact, if you read Matthew 19, it's the parallel passage, that same story. Matthew adds that little phrase. Is it lawful to divorce for any and every reason? Right? The Pharisees are basically going to the bank saying, hey, bank, I'd like a loan. You know, I want to start a new business. Oh, great. Those sound like good terms. Now, if I can't pay it back, how easily can I get out of it? Right? They want an easy way out. They want to, right? They're asking, can you just divorce for any and every reason, Jesus? That's their position. Now, why is that a test, right? Because it says they asked this in order to test him. Well, probably the reason that this is a test is because by this point, John the Baptist, who had prepared the way for Jesus, John the Baptist by this point is dead. And he's dead because he was beheaded by Herod. Herod was kind of a governor of that particular region. And Herod had had a very public and a very famous divorce, And John had been critical of it, so critical of it that when Herod at a party asked his uh, his his, I guess stepdaughter or whatever she would have been, hey, what do you want? She went to to Herod's new wife and she said, I want the head of the I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Like he's been critical of us, right? So perhaps they're asking Jesus to try to get him in bad favor with Herod, so that Herod can get rid of him, right? That's their whole point. They're trying to get rid of Jesus, but that's the test. That's the controversy. That's what's going on. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Big controversy. Come on Jesus, take sides. Come on Jesus, get in trouble with the authorities, right? They're, they're after it. Well, Jesus answers their question by not answering their question. And Jesus is very good at this. Jesus does this repeatedly. Jesus is remarkably wise. And so I want to give you just kind of five things as we go through uh, what Jesus says in terms of Jesus' response. And then we'll hone in on really the the point of all this. Because what Jesus is going to do, he's going to go, listen, you're asking about divorce. Let me tell you about marriage. You're asking the wrong question. This is an adventure and missing the point. All right, so here's Jesus' answer. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment so first thing we learn from Jesus is that divorce is never the ideal divorce is never the ideal Jesus says th- this this ability for there to be divorce that you read about in Deuteronomy 24 is not part of the ideal it's not part of a perfect world it's there because of he says your hardness of heart because of sin in the world There's sin in the world. There's brokenness in the world. And sometimes because of that, there are situations in which it's okay to divorce. But it's never God's ideal. Right? What Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, Deuteronomy 24 is a text of concession, not a text of intention. It's a text of concession. He'll make an allowance for this, but it's not his intended meaning, right? One commentator I read had a great analogy. He said, you don't learn to fly a plane by practicing a crash landing right? The the point here is not how quickly and easily can I divorce, right? And think about this. This is true in all areas of life. I know all kinds of people that want to ask the question, how close can I get to sin without it technically being sin? Dumb question, That's the minimum holiness question. What's the easiest way out of my marriage? Jesus is saying, listen, if you're asking that question, it reveals the hardness of your heart. And you need to see God's intention for this. Here's the second thing Jesus tells us. This comes from verse 6, is that marriage is rooted in creation. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Say, listen, Deuteronomy 24, it's a text of concession. It, al- it allows this because of hardness of heart. But if you want to understand marriage, you've got to go back to the beginning. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, well, what does contemporary culture say about marriage? Jesus says, what is God's original design in marriage? And I think it's worth pointing out, given our current situation, that it says, verse 6, and this is a quote from Genesis 127, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth noticing because in our c- current discussion about same-sex marriage, people will often invoke Jesus, right? Jesus is Mr. Compassion, Jesus is Mr. Mercy, and surely if, if Jesus were asked the question about same-sex marriage, surely he would be for it because he loves people. Surely he loves people, and because he loves people, Jesus would go back to creation and say, here is creation. Here's what it looked like before sin came in the world and started ruining everyone's life. Marriage is rooted in creation. Third thing we see from this passage is that the purpose of marriage is oneness. The purpose of marriage is oneness or intimacy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Here again is a quote. This is from Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast... To his wife, the old King James said, leave and cleave. There's, a, there's an attaching that's happening here. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Right? Jesus is so emphatic on this that he repeats himself. Right? He quotes it, which says, you're no longer two, but one. You're no longer two, but one. The purpose of marriage in God's original design between a man and a woman is oneness, intimacy, closeness. Right? You can fill in other words for that, oneness. Th- this is significant. This means that marriage is more than just for your individual happiness. Perhaps that was what you thought when I asked, well, what's the purpose of marriage? You thought it's to be happy. It's it's I think if you follow God's design it's it's wonderfully life-giving and happy. But it's more than that. It's not just about the satisfaction of an individual. It's about the coming together, the oneness, the intimacy of a new couple. It's not just about partnership. Right? It's not just about partnership for common goals and interests and objectives. It's about two people becoming one. It creates a new unit. That's one emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, to become one. It changes you permanently. All right, this is illustrated when you go to a wedding ceremony. I don't know the last wedding ceremony you went to. I've done a number of them where I've had the opportunity to officiate. And oftentimes, there is in a wedding ceremony a physical way to, to visualize this oneness that happens, right? So there's the unity candle where there are two candles, each lit by typically the, the mothers, right? And those become one and the, the two outside candles get blown out. Now, you could make more candles from that one, but you can't really ever split up that one. It's, it's permanently become one. Right? Other ceremonies that I've done have involved unity sand. This is kind of an interesting idea. You get two different colors of sand and the couple sort of pours them in real slowly, you know, and it becomes kind of this new... This new kind of sand. Now you could, I guess, like microscopically pick out, you know, and re-separate the colors. <laughs> like theoretically you could do this, but the idea is the two have become one. Right? Another thing I've seen is unity wine. Some of you would really like that, right? You get a, a white wine and more of a, a red or a rose kind of wine and you pour those together. And you can't separate that again, right? You can't get the white wine out, right? The, the two have become one flesh. And nowhere is this more beautifully and obviously communicated than in what couples do on their wedding night. The two become one flesh, complementary other, man and woman, giving of themselves to become one. That's the purpose. Of marriage. Now get this the purpose of marriage is not sex, but sex is a reminder, it's a picture, it's an illustration of the real purpose of marriage, which is oneness, which is why sex is important and why it matters. Because the purpose of marriage is oneness. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but I want to just finish going through a few of the other things that Jesus here said. About marriage. Next thing he says, we find in verse 9, it's that God is the Lord of marriage, not man. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus says divorce isn't the ideal, marriage is rooted in creation, the purpose is oneness, but listen, God is the Lord of marriage, not man. What therefore God has joined together. One of the questions I asked myself as I was studying this is why is it that the ultra-conservative Pharisees would take a more liberal position on divorce. Now, this doesn't make sense, right? Because in every way, the the, the Pharisees are always trying to make life harder, right? They're trying to add more rules and more things that you have to do, right? So why would they possibly advocate a position that seems to make things real loosey-goosey? Why would that happen? Well, here's why. Because in that kind of culture, if you took the Hillel school that said a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason that she makes him unhappy, what did that do? Who did that put in charge of marriage? Men. So in some ways, their position wasn't actually all that liberal. It was really, really conservative, real patriarchal, real demeaning. Right, that was their desire, to be in charge. And I just think it's so interesting because, listen, legalists love loopholes. And they love lording stuff over. And Jesus here is saying, listen, it's not man, it's not woman that's in charge of marriage. It's God. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Last thing we see uh, from Jesus teaching about marriage. This comes a little bit later. It says in verse 10 that later in the house, the disciples did a follow-up on this, right? So, so we've already read that concluded what Jesus told to the, to the Pharisees. That's the end of that. But then later, the disciples come back. They go, wow, Jesus, this is really, this is countercultural. This is not how we understood stuff. Could you explain this a little bit more? And so Jesus uh, gives us one more lesson here, is that divorce has a big-time ripple effect. Verse 10, in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now listen, Jesus here is talking about unlawful divorce, right? The context of their question was, can you get divorced for any and every reason? And so that seems to be what Jesus has in mind here even as, as he answers, right? Whoever divorces for any and every reason, you've got to know if you get remarried, you're committing adultery. Why, why would that be a valid interpretation? Well, Matthew 19, again, is the parallel passage here. And in Matthew 19, here's what, here's what Jesus says. Matthew adds this just to make it clear. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus, like everyone in this day and everyone in biblical history, believed that adultery was a valid but sad reason for divorce to be an option. Again, remember, it's never the ideal, but it's an option, except for sexual immorality. But, but what he says is, listen, if you, if you go outside of God's design, there's huge ripple effects. In this particular case, it's, you know, this divorce leads to this unlawful marriage, leads to this adultery, leads to this, right? And and those of you who know, who grew up in a divorce or have been divorced, it's a mess, right? I don't need to prove that to you. You know that. And a lot of your hurt and a lot of your regret comes from just the unintended consequences where you thought this is going to be for the best. And in a lot of ways, it wasn't. That's what Jesus says. Divorce has a big time ripple effect. So that's what Jesus has to say about this. You could preach a whole sermon. Right, this would be a great series to do you know, each one of these as a, as a different sermon. But, but what I want to do for the rest of our time, I want to hone in on that third point, that the purpose of marriage is oneness. Because if, if this is adventures and missing the point, we don't want to miss the point. All right, we're not looking for how do we get out of this, how do I crash the plane. We're looking for how do I soar, how do I fly this, how do I do it right, how do I live in marriage in the way that God intended And if that purpose is oneness, then that has to be really, really important. Listen, how many Christians would aggressively fight for the idea, the truth, that marriage is between a man and a woman, but would passively ignore that the purpose of their own marriage is oneness? You can get out there, you can be a champion for marriage God's way. Okay? You want that? Well, that means oneness in your marriage. That means intimacy, closeness, unity in your marriage. Whoa, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. That sounds like work. It's easier to just get out and yell at people. Yeah, maybe that's why you're having a problem with the second part. So, so, marriage about oneness, we got to focus in on that. And so, I've got three questions really related to this. And the first one's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time um, just trying to apply the, what does this look like, this purpose of, of marriage being oneness? So, I asked the question what gets in the way? What gets in the way of married couples experiencing oneness? If this is the goal, if this is the desire, what stops us? What prevents us? What hinders us in this process? Came up with a number of things. I've got eight different things that i think get in the way of married couples experiencing oneness. The first one comes right from verse 7 and it's family. Family. Family can get in the way of married couples experiencing oneness, right? Look at verse 7. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Right? Extended family can have a meddling, getting in the way, getting over involved, getting busy-bodied mess in marriage in a way that that gets in the way of the oneness, right? It can be an extended family issue. But I also think that current family, even children, Jesus doesn't refer to them, but if you're married, you know children can get in the way of oneness. Don't let it happen. Listen, if, if your children's sleeping habits and what you allow and where you allow them to sleep, right? We all have different approaches and philosophies and whatever on parenting. But if, if your choices in that area are keeping you from oneness and intimacy with your spouse, and you think, I'm doing it for the good of my kids. No, you're not. You might think you are, but what your kids need is a mom and dad who are one, who are connected, who are close. That's far more important. If you go, well, I, you know, I just don't feel comfortable leaving my kids with anyone, and so I haven't had a date night in two years, and I... What? Family can get in the way of your oneness. Second thing that can get in the way is finances. Finances, right? Every uh, marriage counselor will tell you that one of the major reasons that people get divorced, or at least big factor, has to do with finances. So are you on the same page with money? Are you one financially? Do you know where you're headed? Do you know the goals that you have? Right? M- maybe you even write it down. You don't have to, but do you know, like, here's how we spend money? Here's how we don't spend money. Here's how we make decisions. Here's what we're going to invest in. Here's what we're saving for. Here's what we're going to give extravagantly to. Here's how we're going to live and handle our money. Do you have secret money? An account that your spouse doesn't know about? You you know... You, you got to make sure to buy it this way or that way or a secret credit card or a stash of cash or something just to make sure that you can kind of do your thing without the conflict. If, that, if that's true, then what you have is a lack of oneness. You need to repent. If you got a secret stash, if you're you know, saving some away just in case, repent of that. Come clean about that. Experience oneness in that. Third thing that gets in the way of married couples experiencing oneness, is familiarity. All right, one of the greatest things about marriage is you get to know somebody really well. One of the hardest things about marriage is you get to know somebody really well. Right? And you, you've seen them at their best, you've seen them at their worst, you've seen them at their sickest, you've seen them at their ugliest. And you can very easily just get into a pattern of, yeah, I know everything there is to know. Really? Listen, you're married to an image bearer of God who is growing and changing. What have you learned about him or her lately? In what ways have you decided, I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to go hard after her. I'm going to seek to know and understand new things about her. We're going to build new memories together and try new experiences together in ways that are going to help me see whole new sides of each other. Have you thought through that? Because familiarity, if you just settle in and you just go with it, it's peaceful, but it's not one. The purpose of marriage is oneness. Fourth thing that gets in the way is fatigue. I hear an amen. Fatigue. Fatigue. Right, the Better Sleep Council, I think they have a vested interest in this study, but they had a study a number of years ago that said that 60% of married people would rather have a great night's sleep than have sex. Any other amens, right? Like, I mean, the reality is, listen, we're tired. And there are nights for men and for women, right? This isn't a down-the-gender line thing, where you just are exhausted. And a lot of us were running so hard and we're trying to know so much and do so much and be so much. And we got all this activity and all this movement and all this, and, and, and yet we're so tired that not only can we not connect sexually, we have a hard time connecting emotionally. We have a hard time even having a conversation beyond, Are you getting the kids tomorrow? Our hearts grow cold and we drift through familiarity into roommate status. And you miss God's purpose for marriage. Here's the fifth thing, is fear. Fear gets in the way of oneness in marriage. There are a lot of people where their marriage is filled with fear. Fear. Fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of doing the wrong thing, fear of acting a particular way, fear of speaking or not speaking, right? Fear gets in the way. Do you intimidate or use emotion to manipulate your marriage to get what you want, right? Some people, they're so emotionally volatile and so emotionally sensitive that a spouse is walking on eggshells constantly afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing. And then it explodes, and it explodes sometimes in anger and intimidation and in physical, and sometimes in withdrawal. And it's just terrifying to be there. And so you walk on eggshells and you creep around and you don't experience oneness. What you experience is using each other to manipulate and to intimidate to get what you want. That's not oneness, that's a dictatorship. It might look different. It might be real emotional or it might be real physical and big and bold. But if you use fear to intimidate and to control, it gets in the way of oneness big time. Next thing that gets in the way is fault finding. Fault finding. There's a wonderful lesson that I've learned from a, a guy named Andy Stanley. He's an author and pastor in Atlanta. And he talks often about how anytime there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, you choose what to fill that gap with. And you will either fill it with trust or with suspicion. Now here's the deal with marriage. It provides you endless opportunities for there to be a gap between what you expect and what you experience. daily. Constantly. And you will choose what to fill that gap with. Will you choose trust? Right, listen, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things. That means love chooses to trust, chooses to believe the best, chooses not to be suspicious. But in marriages that lack oneness because there's been financial, you know, shenanigans or because we just haven't connected very much lately, or because we're just so tired, or any other of these reasons, you can very easily begin to put on some lenses of suspicion where every time something happens and it's not quite the way you wanted, I figured you would do that. I knew you were like that. You always, you never, right? This is where name-calling begins and, and exaggerations. Why? Because we have filled that gap with suspicion instead of trust. Healthy marriages that are one believe the best. They look to trust. They don't look for faults. How can, I, how can I find all the things wrong with you? The next thing that gets in the way is similar to this. It's finger pointing. So it's not just seeing problems, but it's also blaming and blame shifting. Listen, I, I'm not a great marriage counselor. I've done my share and I'm average, right? We have a number of people in our church that are much better, much more gifted at this than I am. But here's what I know. I'm I'm smart enough to know that when you sit down with a couple and and you hear a lot of, but he, but she, well, I know that I got some stuff, but, but, when you hear that, you just just say, you know what, if you want to change that, we can meet again. And if not, we don't need to talk anymore because you are not getting better until that changes. The finger-pointing, the blaming, right? This is as old as the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, God comes to Adam and says, dude, what happened? He goes, the woman that you gave me, God, like you're both, uh, this is not my problem, man. And that finger-pointing, that suspicion, that blaming, it ruins oneness last thing is this, it's fantasy. Fantasy ruins oneness. Listen, your spouse is the only legitimate source of intimacy in your life. The only one. And so if you are finding yourself fantasizing about people that you know or about people that you don't know or that, about people you see on the internet or about people you see in movies or read in books... And you find yourself caught up in this world of fantasy where it makes you feel like, oh, I can, I can kind of lose myself and what it would be like to be with her or to be with him. That's sin. And it's getting in the way of your oneness. Your spouse is the only legitimate source of intimacy in your life. Now here, it's the flip side of that. You are your spouses only legitimate source of intimacy? Which means if you're withdrawing emotionally or withdrawing physically, withdrawing sexually, withdrawing your time, withdrawing your presence, withdrawing just being there, here's what you're doing. You are, and this doesn't justify it, but but it just explains it. You are setting the table for them to fantasize. Now listen, there are are seasons, there are moments, there are health conditions, there are other things where a couple cannot be close. Emotionally, well, hopefully never emotionally, but for sure sexually. But if you are able and you're not willing to be available emotionally, to be available sexually, you are setting the stage for a breakdown in oneness. And I want to talk to the men because I've, Sadly, over the last year, heard from a number of women who are dying for their husband to pursue them sexually. Right? The, 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 the classic sort of stereotype is, you know, oh, she's got a headache. And I've talked to a number of women who go, he is so scared, he is so insecure, he is so afraid, he is so lost in his own little world that he never pursues me, he never comes after me, he never touches me. fantasy gets in the way big time of intimacy so that's what gets in the way next question i had was this why does jesus care so much about this why is this a big deal why 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 would jesus you know say what he has to say here here's why it's because marriage is a picture of jesus relationship between himself and his church Right, Ephesians 5 tells us that, that wives are to respect and to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. Why? Because that's how Christ loved the church. And that the relationship between a man and his wife is like the relationship between Christ and his church. And so people should be able to look at the marriages of Christians and go, oh, that's what God is like. That's how he loves His love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out, it never lets go. Listen, that's how Jesus loves. Because Jesus is the one who said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And even if you are faithless, I am faithful. And so Jesus cares that his people image to the world oneness, commitment, follow through, pursuit because that's how He loves us. That's why it matters. Third question, last question. What if I've made a mess of this? Said everyone in the room. But what, what if I? What if I just haven't? pursued oneness like this, and I, I've gotten too fatigued, or I've gotten too familiar, or I'm in this life of fantasy, or, you know, well, what, what, what do I do? Well, are you still married? Because for those of you who are still married, this message is God's grace to you, and this message is God's invitation for you to begin, however slowly and however painfully, and with as much help as our church family can provide you, the opportunity to move toward God's purpose of oneness and marriage. And so you repent of your sin, and you stay, and you stay committed, and you lock in, and you follow Jesus' call to discipleship, even when it's hard, right? Remember, this whole thing's in the context of following Jesus, a life of self-denial, a life of self-sacrifice. You go, I don't know if I can stay. It hurts too much. There's too much pain. I'm too weak. And the call of Jesus is hard, but he's with you, and it's worth it because it honors him. So if you're still married and you go, I've made a mess of this, then think through that list of those F's, those things that you've, you've you know, stepped in it and re- begin to repent. Begin to trust. Begin to trust that Jesus died to wash and to cleanse and to forgive sins just like that. What if you're divorced? I made a, I made a mess of this and it's, it's too late. I wish I had heard this way back when and I... Got all kinds of questions about verses 11 and 12 and, and what, what then? Listen, there are consequences. That's what Jesus said, right? There's a ripple effect. There's consequences to these things. But there's also grace. There's also the grace of Jesus Christ who comes in the flesh to pursue and win and cleanse his bride. And so there is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. Mark himself has gone out of the way in this book to make sure you know that there is not an unforgivable sin called divorce. The only unforgivable sin is to harden your heart against the Holy Spirit and not pursue him. So there is forgiveness. There is grace. In Jesus, there is forgiveness for that guilt. And listen... In Jesus, not only is there forgiveness, but in Jesus, there is also welcoming and accepting and making you worthy. A lot of you are wrestling because you're you know, I, Am I worth anything? This most important, this most foundational relation in my life, it fell apart. What, oh, do I, is there any value for me? Yes! Jesus comes and he says, come to me. I love you. I accept you. I welcome you in my name. Trust me. And in Jesus, listen, you don't have to be afraid of being alone. You don't have to be afraid that God has abandoned you because Jesus has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Ever. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, how you forgive, how you cleanse, how you welcome, and how you promise to be with us. God, we ask for grace now as we think and as we try to process this, grace to be able to bring our sin and bring the things that have wounded us that we didn't choose, to bring those to your cross and experience forgiveness and healing. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.